this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Geraldine Farr, The Story of an American Singer, written by Geraldine Farr and published in 1916 by Houghton Mifflin Company. Chapter 2 The Dramatic Impulse At five I was sent to school. Among my teachers in the Grove Street School, Melrose, was Miss Alice Sweat, who remains a dear good friend to this day. She was ever kind and sympathetic to me, and I always loved her, although I was often rebellious and unmanageable. My own reckless nature, impatient at restraint, could never endure the order and confinement of the classroom. The dynamic energy, which has suffered little curb in the passing of years, was even then a characteristic to be reckoned with. Displays of lively temper were not infrequent but the method of punishment at an isolated desk in view of the entire class was far too enjoyable to serve as a correction for my ebullient spirits and was abruptly discontinued. Miss Sweat was my teacher for several years. While her affection and trust never wavered, I doubt if she ever quite understood the harem-scarum girl in her charge. Only the other day, visiting me in my New York home and commenting upon some unconventional act of mine, she sighed and said, "'Geraldine, where are you going to end?' "'Well, I may brush the gallows in the wild flight of my career,' I replied laughingly, "'but I'll never really be hanged.' Those years at the Grove Street School, when I was developing from childhood into young girlhood, were full of excitement, romance, and expectations. But I looked upon them as a trying period, which had to be endured before I could devote myself entirely to my ambition. I was full of both temper and temperament, and an unlimited supply of high spirits, which manifested themselves in various unusual ways, singing and acting, idealizing myself as many of the heroines whose gracious images intoxicated my imagination. At times I walked on air, and always my head was filled with dreams and hopes of this marvelous career. It was at this time that I wrote a play, Rapunzel of the Golden Hair, based upon an old fairy story. As usual, I wished always to be the heroine, Yet fate had not bestowed the necessary golden locks upon me. My dark hair was worn short, and I must have looked much like an impish boy. Then my dramatic vision had soulful eyes and an angelic expression, but instead of looking like an angel, I was more like a gypsy at the distressing gosling stage, too undeveloped. Yet I dreamed of the times when I would appear before immense audiences, as the beautiful heroine of my dreams, and hold them fascinated by my song and personality. I always had the utmost faith in a certain power of magnetism, 
It seemed as though from my youngest days I felt that I could influence others, and often I experimented just to see what effects I could produce. The impulse to dramatize everything found an opportunity when I was about ten years old in the arrival in town of the brother of a girlfriend. This boy, slightly older than I, had been educated in England and had brought back exquisite manners and an English accent that greatly impressed the young ladies of my class. I need hardly mention the fact that these attributes were looked upon with contempt by the masculine element, who had no small measure of derision for the youthful Chesterfield. I had cared little for and never encouraged boy sweethearts, but this youngster's exclusive admiration did arouse my interest. I felt flattered for a short time, but alas, he was unmusical to a degree, and companionship suddenly terminated on my side when I found that he was to be neither subjugated by my singing nor thrilled by my acting. One day I rebuffed him when he tried to walk home with me after school, offering to carry my books. Puzzled, he made a formal call on my mother, doubtless with a view to reconciliation, and asked permission to accompany me as usual. My mother laughed and told him to ask me. "'I have asked Miss Geraldine,' he said sadly, "'but she does not seem to care for my attentions.' A few days later he went skating. The ice broke and he was drowned. Instantly I became a widow. Drama, real drama, had come into my life, and with all the feeling of an instinctive actress I played my role. I dressed in black, abandoned all gaieties, went to and from school mopping my eyes with a black-bordered handkerchief, and the other boys and girls stood aside in silence as I passed, leaving me alone with my grief. For six weeks I played the tragedy, and then, in the twinkling of an eye, the mood in which I had been genuinely serious passed away. In life this young boy had meant absolutely nothing to me. In death he became a dramatic possibility, which I utilized unconsciously as an outlet for my emotion. I was not pretending I was terribly in earnest. I actually believed in my grief. Who can say that it was only acting? A temper, which I regret to confess time has not very much chastened, came to the front in my school days to the dismay of my mother. In 1892, when I was ten years old, the city of Melrose held a carnival and celebration to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the discovery of America. Floats were planned to represent the 13 original states. The selection of the schoolgirl to impersonate Massachusetts fell to my class in the Grove Street School, and I was anxious for this honor, not only because of the personal glory and prominence, but because I really believed that I could impersonate Massachusetts better than any other girl in the class. Well, I did appear as Massachusetts, and, with the other twelve states, was driven through the streets of Melrose, mounted on the float, bearing the flag of the nation. But two girls in the school, who had voted against me in the election, watched me from afar with swollen and blackened eyes. 
I had struck them in a moment of quick anger, because their choice had been against me. The following winter, while many of the boys and girls were skating, a boy of twelve or thirteen named Clarence annoyed me exceedingly by trying to trip me with his hockey stick. I warned him three times that he had better let me alone, but he persisted in his persecution. After the third time, I skated to shore, picked up my umbrella, carefully tore three of the steel ribs from it, and, with these as a whip, I thrashed Clarence. Clarence sat with discomfort for some days, and I believe his mother seriously contemplated making a police charge against me for beating him. This temper, or temperament, often found expression at home in moods, when for hours, sometimes days, I wouldn't break silence. If anyone interfered with or spoke to me during these moments, I felt just as though someone were combing my nerves the wrong way with a fine grating comb. My mother was wise enough to leave me alone in my intense irritability and depression. She appreciated the extremes of my nature, which were somewhat like the well-known little girl of our childhood rhymes. When she was good, she was very, very good, and when she was bad, she was horrid. I fear at times I was very, very horrid, but I planned a danger signal. One day I came home with a pair of most distinctive black and white checked stockings, the most hideous things one can imagine. Mother, I said, when I wear these stockings, I want to be let alone. Thus it was an understood thing that no one should speak to me or notice me in the least while these horrors adorned me. Perhaps after a few hours or a day I would go up the back stairs, change my stockings, and the sun would shine again. It was at this time that I was the victim of an accident which resulted in a neat bit of surgery. My mother and I were spending a summer in the little village of Sandwich, New Hampshire. I was crazy to carve a small horse out of wood and went down to the woodshed in the rear of the country house where we were staying, armed with a hatchet and followed by an admiring youngster from the village. The hatchet was very sharp. My experience in carving wooden horses was limited. Suddenly the hatchet came down and clipped a tiny bit off the extreme ends of my left thumb and forefinger. I screamed with agony and cried in amazement as the poor little bleeding tips of my fingers fell to the floor, but the country boy, with wonderful presence of mind, picked them up, and keeping them warm in his closed hand, ran with me at full speed to the nearest doctor. Fortunately, he happened to be at home. When the village boy showed him the wounded hand and the tiny bleeding bits of finger, he clamped them instantly on the fingers where they belonged, put on ointments, and bound them tight with bandages. This marvelous surgery, without a stitch being taken, actually was successful. The fingers healed, and now only a slight scar remains. I regret to say that this physician, whose presence of mind thus saved my fingers from being permanently mutilated, is entirely unknown to me now. Some years ago in Boston, 
I told this story in an interview, and a physician wrote me from some other city that he was the man who had saved my fingers for me. I wrote and thanked him for his kindness toward a little girl, but his letter was mislaid and destroyed, so that even now I do not know his name. Wherever he is, however, he will always have my thanks and warmest admiration." Finally the time came for me to enter the Melrose High School. I objected seriously to the further routine of public schooling, as I wished to study only music. But both my father and mother insisted, so I began the study of languages. I was intensely interested in mythology, history, and literature, but I hated mathematics. I always preferred to count on my fingers rather than to use my brain for such merely mechanical feats as adding or multiplying figures. In the study of languages, I soon found that my teachers were excellent grammarians, but I pleaded that I wanted to learn to talk and not merely to conjugate. I took a supplementary course in literature and well remember the most important incident when I competed for the prize. I was quite sure my essay would win. In fancy, I had already rehearsed the pretty speech in which I should thank the committee for the honor conferred on me. But the prize went to someone else. My anger was sudden and hot. Then and there I made up my mind that if ever I could not be first in what I attempted, I would drop it at once." I believed my material was best and deserved the prize, and I was hurt at not conquering before an admiring and enthusiastic audience. Thus I early learned that maybe I could not always win, could not always be first, that perseverance must aid natural talents, and that it is cowardly to drop a thing when at first you don't succeed. The sting of adverse criticism may often prove the best of tonics. I have since found it so. You've been listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. If you like what you hear and want to support my creative endeavors, then simply go to ko-fi.com slash Penny Johnson and you can buy me a lemonade. That's ko-fi.com slash Penny Johnson. Thanks for your support.